and they wait and they endure 400 years of silence. And then, like the breaking of a new dawn, Jesus of Nazareth steps onto the scene. And his ministry is altogether different. He teaches as one with authority, such that the scribes and the Pharisees take note of him. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part five in our six-part series, What's in a Name, with Pastor Paul Twist. Pastor Paul has moved from Daniel chapter seven to the New Testament Gospel of Matthew chapter 26, verses 63 and 64. Daniel's vision in the prior passage has come alive as the scene shifts to Jesus on trial before the Council of Religious Leaders in Jerusalem. Jesus, the promised Son of God and Son of Man, is answering questions. The learned high priest and his council hear words their studies have covered from a revered Old Testament prophet. Jesus replies to the council, quote, From now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. End quote. And that settles it. Caiaphas, the high priest, flies into a rage. God's kingdom is alive, but his king is sentenced to die on the cross. Here's part five of What's in a Name? The genealogy of Luke traces Jesus' line all the way back to Adam, and it finishes by saying, Adam, the son of God. So Adam was the very first son of God. Now, what does sonship entail? I would say it entails a privilege and a responsibility. The privilege is that he has been created in the likeness of God after his image. That is not true for anything else in the created order. It is only mankind. The responsibility that comes with sonship is that he must rule, he must reign, he must represent God, as it were, as he establishes an order, an authority over creation. If we bring those two thoughts together, privilege and responsibility, we might sum it up by saying that the Son of God was to mediate God to the created order. He's created in the image of God after his likeness. In some way, he looks like God, represents him, and he is to rule over creation. If we bring those two thoughts together, you might sum it up by saying the responsibility, the role of the Son of God was to mediate God to the created order. He was to rule in such a way that he made God known, much like an envoy or an ambassador represents and communicates his head of state or his king, so also with the Son of God. And you know how the storyline progresses. We get to Genesis chapter 3, man sins, he fails. He scorns his privilege and he fails in his responsibility. And what that means is that from Genesis 3 onwards, there is a search. The search is on 
for a new son of God, for a son of God who will not fail as the first son of God failed, one who will embrace the privilege and fulfill the responsibility. Interestingly, as we work our way through this storyline, the next son of God that we find is the nation of Israel. We see this when we go to the Exodus account. When you read the Exodus account, what you see is that the the event of God drawing his people out of Egypt, separating the waters, delivering them from slavery, is described in particular language. Specifically, it is described in terms of light and darkness. It is described in terms of the separation of waters and the emergence of dry land. So a close reading of the text, as you think through the Exodus account and that language of light and darkness, separation of waters and emergence of dry land, it should start to ring some bells. We've heard this language before, namely in Genesis chapter 1. The point is that Moses writes about the Exodus event as a second creation or a recreative act. And just as in the first creation in Genesis 1, a son of God was found, so in this second creative act, a son of God is found. Specifically, it is Israel. God saves those people. He forms a nation and he calls them my son. And so now the theology of sonship, the role of mediating God down to the created order, is bestowed upon the nation of Israel. Now, there's a significant transition from Genesis to Exodus, from one son of God to the next, that we have to take note of. That transition is from individual, Adam, to corporate body, Israel. It's a significant transition in the son of God storyline. More specifically, you might say the transition is from individual Adam to nation Israel. And the point to note is that all of a sudden, Son of God theology has now taken on a nationalistic nuance. All of a sudden, the Son of God role of mediating God down to the creative order will be carried out by a nation to the nations. So when Jesus confesses that he is the son of God, the implications of that go far beyond the borders of Israel. He's claiming authority over the ends of the earth and all the nations. And already we're getting ahead of ourselves. Israel, the son of God, fails. They fail in their task of mediating God to the nations as they disobey God's law and fail to honor him. In fact... It got so bad that in the time of the judges, there was nobody who wanted anything to do with Israel. All those surrounding nations, they wanted to stay away from Israel. Rather than looking in and seeing something altogether beautiful that they were inherently attracted to, such that they wanted to worship the God of Israel, if you had to plan a journey in those days that would have naturally gone through Israel, you would have done anything you could have done to go around it and to avoid Israel. They utterly failed as the Son of God. And so the search continues. And we go from Israel back to individual, specifically the person of David. David is our favorite king. He's beloved of the Lord. 
He receives the covenant, the kingly covenant, 2 Samuel chapter 7. And it's in that covenant that we find the language of sonship. God speaks to David and concerning his descendants, the Davidic line, he says, I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. So now we keep moving forward in the son of God theology. Not only does it have an inherently nationalistic nuance, but it's now locked into kingship and the Davidic line. The son of God is a Davidic king and his role is to obey the law of the Lord And as he obeys, he mediates the character of God to Israel, understanding that as he does that, Israel will in turn flourish and Israel mediates the character of God to the nations. It's as if God has set up this mechanism, a domino effect, where the Son of God comes, succeeds in his kingly office, mediate God down, God goes out to the nations and the world will worship him. It is not an overstatement to say that the hopes of the world rest upon the shoulders of the Davidic king. And so it's with horror that we turn a few pages on from 2 Samuel 7 and we read that at the time when kings go out to battle, David stayed at home. The sin with Bathsheba is not simply moral failure, though it is that, gross moral marital failure. Far more than that, as he sins in 2 Samuel 11, all hope is lost for the nation of Israel and indeed the world. He sends the Davidic house into disarray. In turn, that puts Israel into disarray. It's not an overstatement to say that when David commits adultery with Bathsheba, that is the very first step for that nation going into exile. It all goes rapidly downhill from there. And sure enough, they go into exile. It is God's judgment upon them. They return from exile, but without king. And they wait. And they wait. And in their theology, there is a strong hope, expectation, yearning for another son of God. A son of God who will mediate God down to cause the nation to flourish and in turn to cause worldwide worship. And they wait and they endure 400 years of silence. And then, like the breaking of a new dawn, Jesus of Nazareth steps onto the scene. And his ministry is altogether different. He teaches as one with authority, such that the scribes and the Pharisees take note of him. He performs works which in every way suggests that he has been anointed in a special way by God. More than that, he walks uprightly, not deviating from the law of the Lord one step his whole life. He is in the line of David. And so we see the expectation of the people slowly being met in the gospel narrative as one chapter after another, we see a confession on the part of those standing by and watching his ministry that you are the son of God. 
And it's an increasing confession. As you read through the gospel narrative, it's like an avalanche that starts out so slowly and yet it builds with power and force. Surely you are the son of God. You are the son of the blessed one. You are the son of the most high. Over and over again, they all start to confess it. And then we get to the trial scene and now it is his enemies asking him the question. It's interesting to note that in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, up until this point, Jesus has not said outrightly, I am the Son of God. It's been found on the lips of others, suggesting that he's the one they've been waiting for, and now his enemies are pressing for him to admit it. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? To which Jesus says, yes. In Matthew, the response is, you have said that it is so. It's the same response he gives in verse 25 of this chapter to one of Judas's questions. It's the same response he gives in 27 verse 11, which is also a clear affirmative yes. And then when you read the trial scene in Mark and Luke, it's given to us more explicitly stated, yes, Jesus says, admitting that he is the Son of God. And so with this biblical storyline established from the garden onwards, we understand that this is quite some claim for a carpenter from Nazareth. You might well be asking, how on earth did this Son of God succeed? If all the other sons of God that we've seen failed miserably, how does this one succeed? The answer is because this Son of God was God the Son. Meditate on that. This Son of God, standing in the storyline of the Son of God, is God the Son. You might put it another way and say the Son eternal became the Son incarnate. And because of that, he succeeds. And so when he says yes to the question of whether you're the son of God, it's no small deal. Have you come to rule over us is the question. Yes, I am the son of God. Have you come to mediate the most high living God? Yes, that's what I've come to do, says Jesus. Have you come to effect, to initiate global worship to Yahweh? Yes, that's exactly what I've come to do, says Jesus. He is claiming to be the centerpiece of the theology of passages like Isaiah 2 and Micah 4, where we see all the nations of earth streaming up the mountain to the house of God. He is making claim to be the centerpiece to passages like Isaiah 11, where we see the root of Jesse standing on the mountain, constraining the nations to come to him, separating the waters so that they walk dry shod. He is saying, I'm the centerpiece to Isaiah 60, where we see foreign kings bringing tribute to God. And many more passages. Jesus here, the carpenter from Nazareth, is saying, I am the centerpiece of salvation history. And he has more to say. That's not the end of his confession, but we do well to hit pause at this point and ask how great is your view of Jesus? What does the Son of God mean to you? A term 
with which you've become all too familiar and read quickly over in the Gospels. How great is your view of Jesus? Annie is two years old. I brush her teeth every night. When I brush, I sing. The reason being, for some strange reason, Daddy's bad singing mesmerizes Annie such that she will sit still long enough for me to get the toothbrush around her mouth. Now, what do we sing? Well, often I'll sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Annie tries to join in, and it fails because she has a toothbrush in her mouth. (laughs) And the whole thing becomes a debacle, but we get there in the end, and the teeth are clean, and she's happy. Will I still sing that song with her when she is 18, 20? Toothbrushing aside, will I still sing that song with my daughter when she's 20? And the answer is no. Because when Annie is 20, she needs a much bigger view of Jesus than the one she has at the age of two. She needs a more robust theology of Christ. When she's facing the realities of life, when she's facing the brokenness of life, she needs a bigger theology of Jesus than the one that I give her now. We cannot have a small Christ. If you are to live a life that truly honors the Lord, if you are to live a life navigating through all of the brokenness and the tragedies and the trials of life, then your Jesus can't be one who simply fits in your pocket. If he fits in your pocket in peacetime, I guarantee in times of trial, he will not be big enough for you. If he fits in your pocket in peacetime, then when your life is shattered, your theology won't stand up to what is happening. You need a biblical view of Jesus. The problem being that we tend to develop our theologies around ourselves. We are so self-centered that we build our theology around ourselves as if we're the center of salvation history, as if Jesus came to forgive me of my sins, to make life good for me, and to ensure that I get to heaven. If that's all you've got, then your Jesus is far too small. You need to see Jesus as he is and as he claims to be in the text, as the center of salvation history. For all nations, you need to understand that this man came to reign over the Arctic and the jungles and the deserts and the cities and the oceans and the mountains. And he mediates God perfectly to all of creation. So much so that when he comes back and establishes his reign on this earth as son of God, the character of God will go out And the whole earth will boast of God's glory in a way that it has not since Genesis chapter 3. The whole earth will boast of the glory of God when the Son of God sits on his throne. And this must be 
the reality, the truth upon which you set your mind day after day after day, trusting that it is of the utmost importance for you to do so. All the other things that would claim your time are not nearly as important as your gazing upon the sun. Now, if we take our finger off the pause button, we move on, and here is where we observe our second ripple in the pool. The high priest drops a pebble, saying, Are you the Son of God? And the first ripple, Jesus confesses that he is. The second ripple that we can observe is that he says, I'm also the Son of Man. And so we might ask, well, what does it mean that he is Son of God and Son of Man? What does it mean that those two familiar titles are here brought together in one text? If you look again at verse 64, Jesus says, you have said so. Well, the NAS says, you have said it yourself. Why does Jesus answer in this way? It's almost like there's a reluctance on his part. He doesn't come out and say, yes, I am, you got it. Why does he answer in this way? One commentator calls this a qualified admission, a qualified omission. Jesus is saying, yes, it is true, I am the Son of God. But if we paraphrase, it would be like him saying, yes, but I wouldn't have asked the question like that. Yes, I am the Son of God, but, but that's now not how I would have asked the question. Or, yes, I am the Son of God, but there's more to it than that. There's more to tell you about who I am. And this is where we get his second confession. Jesus says, I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He's pulling on the text of Daniel 7. We were there last week and we saw all that it meant to be the Son of Man, walking in the footsteps of broken Adam, fallen Adam, come to restore broken creation up to God. If I was to summarize the ministry of the Son of Man, I would say he has come to restore broken creation up to God. And here Jesus brings together Son of God and Son of Man titles and in one sense, on a simplistic level, we could say this simply further challenges our understanding of who Jesus is. Just in case you thought you had a big enough picture of Jesus, you really don't. He is the Son of God and all that that means, and he's the Son of Man. Back to back. How's that for a quiet time to meditate upon? But there's more to it than that. All the way through the gospel narrative, Jesus has been hinting at a relationship between Son of God and Son of Man. Read through the gospel narrative, specifically look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke and see how they portray the relationship. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. This gospel narrative in the book of Matthew chronicles an event that happened 400 years following the last words of God to his people. Some of them have been waiting for a long time to hear about God's plans for his people Israel. Now, God's plan is rolling out, and some see it as it truly is, the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy, and those who see it rightly rejoice. 
Now, midway through today's teaching, Pastor Paul asks this question. What does the Son of God mean to you? This is a phrase and question that appears throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We should all revisit through them. There's always more to hear and learn on our website, timelesstruthtoday.org. Select Broadcasts on the homepage, and there you'll find an audio treasury of gospel truth, including earlier parts of this series. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. Come tomorrow, it's the final part six of this series, What's in a Name? Hope you'll join us then. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.